0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Clinical Research Circle. <laughs> we have today a very special guest uh, and actually for the second time, the CEO of Curative Biotech, Richard Gurr. Uh, could you please Richard uh, introduce yourself?
1: Well thank you and thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Richard Gahr, I'm the CEO uh, of Curative Biotech and I've spent basically the last 17 or 18 years in the life sciences, I was a CEO for a long time and founder of Neural Stem Biopharmaceuticals, a NASDAQ company uh, that developed stem cell technology as well as gene and cell therapy and small molecule drugs. And Curative is uh, currently an OTC current information company. So I have to sort of hold up the um, (laughs) example. We can't talk about anything that isn't, you know, that's a forward-looking statement. You have to go to the website and look at all the various risks. We are very excited about um, the arc of our development. I was on your program before talking about uh, our model. Um, It's a little different uh, than the typical startup biotech company, and that's intentional by design. We think we've come up with a model to mitigate, um, not all, but most of the risks that we have found. And I say we, it's a consolidation of the founding uh, scientists and business people at Curatech, who all have a lot of experience in big pharma, big bio, small bio. and the idea was to, to create a business model and a company that would mitigate a lot of the risks that we saw um, through the decades in, in companies like this, to try and make it um, a smoother ride, if you will. Uh,
0: Richard, what was the drive that influenced the design of this unique business model?
1: So it's basically, you know, when you spend decades in a business, you kind of see what's going on behind the scenes, right? And and we all realized from different points of view that there were reasons that projects failed, right? And and reasons projects succeeded, but there's just a tremendous amount of really valuable and uh, possibly curative um, technology out there that gets unloved for various reasons. And so we thought that we had between us, the experience and the background to be able to sift through all of these opportunities and continue to find opportunities that we could acquire at what I call sustainable prices. And um, we always look for opportunities that present some kind of accelerated either clinical development path or regulatory path. So a good example of that is our new COVID drug that we've in licensed to develop to treat kidney failure patients specifically. So Operation Warp Speed is a good example of a vehicle that allows you an accelerated development path, right? The existing first generation of COVID vaccines out there have been developed in basically a year, right? as opposed okay. to typically 10 years from lab to, to patients. And so that's a good example. Another example is we are repurposing metformin through um, a discovery made at NIH, at the National Eye Institute, to treat macular degeneration. Our first indications will be dry, intermediate macular degeneration and geographical atrophy, which is basically late stage Dry AMD. Um, But because this is a repurposing of an existing approved drug, metformin, which is orally active, a pill, and we're developing it into an eye drop, it's probably, well, it is eligible. You never know if you'll get it, but it's eligible for 505 B2 uh, approval process at the FDA. And that's basically a process where they say, okay, you're using an existing drug that's been approved. And so if they let you use the 505B pathway, you can reference the safety data from that drugs trip through the regulatory. And that can save you a lot of time and money. So those are kind of the examples that we look for projects that have world-class science. We also look for projects with sustainable intellectual property either existing or filed. And again, a good example here is from NEI, our, the patents on the reformulated Metformin have been filed, but none have yet been granted. So um, we had to do our own analysis of those patents and come to our own conclusions, and we, we did, and we believe it is sustainable intellectual property. And then the good news there is, of course, when they're granted, you basically have the entire useful patent life in front of you, which adds value to the product. Um, Another example is the rabies drug. So the treatment that we have for late-stage rabies um, is an existing patent, and it's in the later stages of its useful patent life. However, it is a... um, a rare disease, uh, and it's possible when you go to orphan or rare diseases, you can get up to seven years of additional exclusivity, regardless of patents, from the FDA. So there, we look for things like that, where there's ways to enhance or create sustainable intellectual property, where there's ways to accelerate the either regulatory or clinical development path, or, or both. Um, and then, of course, we're always looking for what we consider to be world class science. And um, finally, we have a lot of expertise uh, through um, our, our development and process people um, in actually manufacturing and developing drugs. And so, um, we, we look very carefully at were there problems in actually creating the drug, right? Regardless of how good the science looks or the, or the patents looks, can you really do it, right? And can you build know. it and, and is that a practical um, solution? So those are some of the things we look at in, in our particular model. And then the back end of that is, we're not building this company to commercialize all the way through. These drugs, our model involves finding these assets, acquiring them, adding value, mostly through a clinical trial, adding human data, and then IP where it's possible, and then partnering it out, whatever that means, whether it's sale or license, to larger entities that have both the appetite and the resources for commercialization, launch, And continue commercialization and then we will just continue to bring products in the front part of the model and get them back through the the back side of the model so that's really what our it's a it's a almost a hybrid of a venture firm and a uh, biotech development firm it allows us to be completely agnostic with respect to the indication So most companies are founded on a founder science and it's either a pathway or something, but it pretty much is relegated to one indication or one area of indication like neuro or gastro, right? Or cardiovascular. We're completely agnostic with respect to that. We have background in all of these areas and this allows us to, if you will, fish from a much larger pond to be able to find these these assets. We're also agnostic with respect to where in the process the asset is. So it could be early stage, it could be late stage. As long as we see the ability to acquire it correctly and to add value and then move it on to the next stage, then we will consider that asset. So that also significantly reduces the risk that most startup biotech companies have. They have all their eggs really in one basket, basically.
0: Exactly. I think that's what's fascinating about your organization that your pipeline has such a broad spectrum or of indications that probably, no, I I mean, I have not seen another organization like um, like Curative Biotech in that perspective. And that's incredibly um, fascinating for me um, and 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 you guys keep on adding more, like uh, like you were mentioning, like in in our in our previous video, we were talking about the uh, the macular degeneration, the rabies, and the glioblastoma, and uh, and I think it was basically just mention a little bit about the next generation COVID drug, uh, the vaccine that you guys have now in the sure. in the in the pipeline. I would like to learn a little bit more about. And uh, why is this this um, next generation vaccine more powerful and seems to be more universal in treating different potential variants? Uh, I, I was reading also that this uh, this new vaccine is uh, the, the initial target is gonna be uh, people the population that has kidney failure. Uh, uh, Can you please elaborate a little bit sure. more on that? This is fascinating.
1: <laughs> so. Um... The project originated with our uh, partners who uh, at Mid-Atlantic Biotech Therapies who developed IMT-504, which is our rabies drug. And what that really is, is an adjuvant. It's It's an immunomodulatory drug that basically works with your immune system and makes it stronger and better in various ways. And so they were looking at adding that to an existing vaccine to treat COVID, just in general, right, A COVID. And then the more work they did in animals and the more they looked at it, they saw that they were producing very high titers. That is, they were producing a lot more neutralizing antibodies than the existing first generation of vaccines that were out there. But more isn't necessarily better if you're completely protected, you're completely protected. And if you can get a booster shot that goes longer, then you're protected for longer. But what we started to focus on was there are subpopulations, very vulnerable populations out there, who are not being well served by the first generation of vaccines. And Uh, One of those groups, and there's been recent publications in France, which we've referenced before publicly, which showed that patients who have kidney failure, whether they require transplantation or are on dialysis, are doing very poorly as a group on the existing vaccines. They have very little protection and, and it wanes very quickly. And so... That's why we, there are other subpopulations and vulnerable groups, but we, we have to pick one. You have to go ahead with a clinical trial in oh, on one. And we think that, you know, this offers, again, from our model's point of view, a really good um, indication it, it is, I believe, going to qualify as a rare disease. There are about 200,000 at any one time, about 100,000 dialysis patients in the US. And there's about 100,000 people on the waiting list, I think, for kidney transplants. So um, we've got that. And one of the advantages of, of working on rare diseases is that by definition, you have smaller patient populations which means you will have smaller clinical trial populations. Exactly. So if you were doing a COVID trial, right, for just a general, because you think you have a better COVID vaccine, you still have to do hundreds of thousands of people, right? It's, it's incredibly expensive and large. And for an organization our size, that's just not practical. But being able to focus on this vulnerable subpopulation that really needs an enhanced vaccine, um, you know, it again. It just checks all the boxes in ours. Um, you know, it also has, as I mentioned, Operation Warp Speed. Right, you'll be applying to is available if we can show that this is, you know, safe and effective and uh, in all the preclinical IND enabling. Um, activities, then we would get help from Operation Warp Speed. We're not there yet. And actually, you know, it will take the better part of two years, right, to do all the things that are required to get this vaccine to the point where we can actually file an IND to test it in, in humans.
0: So what's, what's the uh, the date that you have in mind to be uh, starting this?
1: Well, we've already started um, but it's very difficult in today's world to even talk about dates. You know, part of our model is that we only bring in programs where we think we can hit major inflection points in value within two years.
0: Two years. That's And that's, so this it. clearly
1: fits in our model, but, you know, everybody who's in this business will tell you that things you used to be able to just pick up the phone and buy that aren't even important for doing things, they may tell you you can't get it till April right, or whatever it is, right, the the supply chain (laughs) mess is everywhere and all-encompassing. I still haven't seen anything which makes me think we can't make any of our two-year inflection points, even with all these problems, but it does make you very reticent to try and put an actual date on it, as opposed to a general, you know, quarterly annual thing, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, in research we have that right that we have the projection but we're not sure uh when is that going to happen and then on top of that with covid uh a lot of this uh things also change uh, a lot <laughs> okay yes. so uh one another another addition that you have now besides the, the covid vaccine is uh, Catherine son which is now uh, is the heads up uh, for uh, for, uh, for the uh, curative biotech vaccine programs. And uh, so uh, she joined the team recently, um, obviously because of the vaccine. Uh, Could you please tell us about it? Sure, so Kathy
1: um, is a special advisor to the board and to the CEO. Um, and I had the pleasure of working with Kathy at Neural Stem. I had recruited her to our board. Um, so I've worked with her before. Kathy actually um, was one of the original people who helped develop SmithKline's vaccine programs worldwide. So she has a lot of direct experience in this. And she'll be overseeing, um, she'll be providing oversight to the programs. So she will actually chair the joint steering committees that we create um, with MABT and people like that to move the programs forward. Um, And, you know, her her background, you can Google her, it speaks for herself. But I will tell you, we would not have taken this program on had she not agreed to provide oversight and work with the board and with me to help him, right? Because this is, um, you know, one of the areas where we have a lot of expertise in manufacturing, but that was about it with respect to vaccines. Um, All the other programs we have, we have the regulatory and clinical and commercial expertise also in our backgrounds, but not from vaccines, only the manufacturing. So it was great to be able to to access Kathy's experience and background uh, to help oversee all these programs. Um, to ensure that you know, we're doing them right. And also, obviously, um, when we turn around and push it out the other side, we we know people will have more faith than what we're saying it is. Of it course. Is.
0: <laughs> Having an espresso with a uh, plus. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and we've done that with every program, just to mention. So Dr. Uh, Dmitry Dimitrov, who was the inventor of the CD56 Uh, cancer drug, the glioblastoma um, antibody drug conjugate, who's now the head of the antibody uh, cancer antibody program at Pitt, has joined our scientific advisory board to help provide oversight and direction for that program. And Dr. Kapil Bharti, who's at the National Eye Institute, who is the inventor of the patents we licensed from NEI, has also joined our Uh, Scientific Advisory Board to also provide oversight and help direct that program. So that's also part of our model is is we like to make sure we have the absolute best people in the world, you know, and being near virtual allows you to do that, right? You can't do that when you just have hundreds of employees and everybody has to work for you in-house. So this is another part of our model that I think is uh, we're hoping will, will prove itself.
0: That's basically, you basically have the dream team (laughs) to be successful. We're trying. (laughs) Uh, In our our previous interview in July, we were talking about uh, the rabies, the metformin, and also um, about the glioblastoma. I remember uh, we were talking in the rabies specifically, we were talking about the inflection point Uh, uh, do you have any updates on that?
1: Sure. So um, the rabies program is a little um, different in that we believe that only one trial will be required to get to an approval and to what we're looking at here also as the PRV, the Priority Review Voucher, because rabies is on the... Uh, FDA's list of tropical diseases which are eligible for the priority review voucher. And because late-stage rabies, right, after it's too late to get the regular shot, is an always fatal disease, right? There's no kind of gray area. You either die or you don't, and everyone dies, right? We believe that one well-run open-label clinical trial um, will give us enough data Um, to be able to get an approval, and also you have to be approved to get the the PRV. Um, And that entire process is a two-year window, start to finish, a year basically of manufacturing and regulatory, and then a year of running the clinical trials and getting the data. Um, Now, we have already received orphan designation for this from the FDA, Um, and uh, so that's, you know, again, it's coming along. The real larger patient populations are in places like Manila, right, in Pakistan and India and even China and Africa, um, where it's going to be much easier to do the clinical trial because there'll be so many patients. The flip side of that is that these are still areas that are dealing with COVID. And so nobody knows when the clinical trial infrastructure will sort of open up, right? And hospitals will will be back to, you know, inviting you in to do these kind of clinical trials. Um, But we expect it'll be within the, the window we're looking at still. And obviously, because this isn't always fatal disease, I think that even if COVID is continuing to be a problem in those countries, we should be able to figure out a way to get the trial started and do
0: it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And then with the metformin, um, would rem- I remember in the last interview, we were talking about that the, the IND uh, for age-related was going to be um, sent at the end of this year. Is that still happening?
1: Probably not. Um, the... IND-enabling studies require various things that have been affected by the supply chain. So our actual reformulation of the drug and making the drug is fine. Um, But there are, you know, I would still say definitely, I think we've moved that to, instead of the end of this year, just first quarter of next year, I think what I'm most comfortable saying now is that we'll be in humans and hopefully finished with this trial by the end of next year, right? However, the other milestones stack up. I think that's still pretty much where we expect to be, but um, there isn't anyone who could tell you with any certainty today, you know, within a monthly amount uh, when anything is going to be done. I'm looking at things based on quarters now, and that almost accounts for all of the holdups and contingencies we're seeing. Um, So that's, I think, the comfortable way to look at it.
0: Okay, and then uh, for the glioblastoma, what's the latest information?
1: So the glioblastoma program is chugging along very well. We um, have our cell banks now um, remember, this is a, a um, an antibody drug conjugate, and the antibody is grown in cells. And so the cells are um, proved that we got from NIH that we're using as the stock. We had to qualify and make sure they were okay, and they are. And we're going to be uh, actually manufacturing the cells in Dublin, Ireland. Oh. And we have a company in Amsterdam that will be creating the chemical that's going to be conjugated into the cells and we will do the conjugation. Uh, and so that's moving along. And again, I think our two-year inflection point window there is to have an IND filed with the FDA by then to complete all of the animal trials, the manufacture of the drug, the toxicity testing, all of those things. And the, I'm still very comfortable with that uh, with that timeline and um, I can happy to say that also Nick bolus who is the neurosurgeon at Emory um, who also I've worked with before on ALS um, has agreed to join our scientific advisory board also and and will help to oversee and um, design all of the preclinical and clinical work, that's going to be required to to move that forward. So
0: 2021 looks like a very exciting year. (laughs) It's going to be,
1: you know, um, it's going to be a very interesting year. And of course, we're also always sort of looking at Gen 2, right? The next generation of products to bring in, as long as everything's online and we Comfortable we're going to hit those inflection points. And I think all of these are are areas where if you do hit these inflection points, we should be able to partner these out. Um, So we're, you know, already starting to look at the Gen 2 programs coming in. And um, I think we look at the Gen 1 programs as sort of proof of concept for the model. And the first part of it clearly worked. We were able to acquire um, assets with world-class science, uh, sustainable IP, and um, the kind of regulatory or clinical accelerated path that we look for, uh, and at the same time, get confirmation of the um, quality of the assets by the people who've agreed to join to help oversee the program. So um, we will continue to kind of look at that and look at, what comes next, but we're focused 95% of every day on making sure that we can execute, right, and, and get this stuff uh, to their inflection points on budget and on time.
0: Thank you, Richard, for giving us an update of what's going on I and mean, to see that all these programs uh, uh, are in progress yeah. and seeing also the new, uh, the new additions like uh, the COVID, uh, the vaccine and, 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 and the new teams, uh, uh, part of your uh, dream team. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for always uh, being available for us. And uh, I hope we'll see you soon too. Again, to to continue on this, uh, we keep on following on the progress of uh, this and your organization, which is, uh, I mean, especially for me is is fascinating because of your business model.
1: Thank you very much for having us and I'm always happy to come back and talk.
0: All right, thank you.